Welcome back to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Research Fellow Max Salmon and I'm here with the Executive Director of the Initiative, Dr. Oliver Hartwich, to kick off the year with a chat about the global foreign policy situation. Oliver, I thought we could start with what's happening in the Middle East right now. Could you just give us a quick overview of the shipping going through the Red Sea, the Houthi movement, things like this? Well, we had a seminal decision actually by the New Zealand government to engage in the Middle East conflict by sending six Defence Force personnel to the Middle East to support the Americans and the Brits in securing freedom of navigation. Because as you mentioned, the Houthis started attacking cargo ships from all sorts of different countries before Christmas and they were disrupting a major shipping route and a really important one. And thanks to the US and UK forces, they have now been pushed back. But it's an ongoing conflict. And I think it is good that New Zealand positions itself quite clearly on this one and stands up for really New Zealand values and global values and supports our allies. We've heard America start to talk already recently last week about how they are preparing for a longer conflict in the region, particularly with the Houthis. Should New Zealand be worried about getting itself tied up in a forever war that America seems to be so fond of in the Middle East? Well, to prepare for a longer conflict in the Middle East is probably an understatement. Yes, we can prepare for a conflict, but I think the conflict has been with us for decades. What we can expect now is that current conflict will escalate further, or is likely to escalate further. We might speculate where it will start, probably in Lebanon. That is probably the most likely place from which Israel will get more attacks in the future. And then, of course, above all of this, we have the question really what's happening with Iran and what will happen to Iran. We saw just a few days ago that an Israeli minister was starting to speculate whether this would now be enough reason to start attacking Iran, so we can see the direction in which this might go. And coming back around to the Houthis for a moment, they seem to have done a very good job of selling themselves to the left of politics internationally. Could you care to comment on how they've managed to pull off their particular media coup? Well, first of all, the Houthis are a Stone Age type Islamist group, a bit like Islamic State, a bit like the Taliban. They seem to have confused the global left quite a bit because some people protesting now seem to confuse the Houthis with the Yemenite government. Well, in fact, it's the opposite. I mean, the Houthis are fighting the Yemenite government. So it's a little bit ironic now to see some protesters saying, hence of Yemen. Well, then they should be supporting the Yemenite government against the Houthis. So, no, this is a terrorist group. It's a terrorist group just like Hamas is in Gaza. And therefore, it is only right to fight back and especially to protect navigation of the seas. There's a lot of talk about the importance of free trade and so on. But if I were uncharitable, I could make an argument this is a very small part of the world and there's a very large ocean and ships can go whichever which way they might want to. You know, what sort of impact is this really going to have for people living in New Zealand? Well, yes, you could say that, but actually, first thing to notice, 15% of the world's trade are currently going through the Red Sea. And uh, if that is no longer possible, then ships, of course, have to take a massive detour of thousands of miles around Africa. And the other thing I would say in response is we probably remember what happened not so long ago when there was a cargo ship stuck, actually, in the Suez Canal. 
and what implications that had for trade. So no, it is a vital shipping route. There's no doubt about that. And we have to protect this because otherwise it could also set a precedent, of course. We could see global trade disrupted in other parts of the world. So no, we have to absolutely uphold freedom to navigate and the freedom to really uh, trade and do trade with whoever you like. We shouldn't be subject to terrorists deciding whether we may. Around the office, you've mentioned a couple of times that the doomsday clocks come closer to midnight than it's ever been before, and there's been a bit of contention over whether this is valid, but you do seem to believe that we are heading towards a geopolitical position not too dissimilar in consequence from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, we had atomic scientists um, now put the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight. That's closest to midnight has ever been. And I think for good reasons, because um, the situation is serious. It is arguably more serious than even the Cuban Missile Crisis was, because the difference between back then and today is that in the Cold War, as unpleasant as it was, as dangerous as it was, we were dealing with relatively rational players. I don't think we can talk about the same degree of rationality when we're dealing with Putin's Russia. And so let's move focus then to Ukraine. What do you think the situation is looking like there, the implications? Could New Zealand be more involved? Could the West be being more involved? Well, we're moving towards the second anniversary of the Russian attack on Ukraine. Well, the 22 attack. I mean, we shouldn't forget, actually. This has been going on for much longer. We should really go back to 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and de facto occupied parts of eastern Ukraine. But it's two years now since the full invasion of Ukraine, the full attack on Ukraine. And there were hopes, of course, last year that Russia would run out of steam, that there would be a Ukrainian counteroffensive taking parts of that occupied territory back. But that hasn't materialized. And the reason why it hasn't materialized is because Ukraine still hasn't received the promised weapons, the promised artillery ammunition, that they need. We can speculate why that is. The most plausible explanation that I've heard is actually that some governments in the West are only supporting Ukraine enough so to basically freeze the war where it stands because they obviously don't want to see Ukraine lose. But bizarrely, they also don't want to see Putin lose because they fear Putin um, after such a military loss because there are several scenarios that are possible if Putin feels cornered. For example, the use of tactical nuclear weapons, but also then attacks on other countries. I mean, Putin has increased his rhetoric against the Baltic states. So there's a possibility that Putin, once he feels cornered enough, will just strike somewhere else or strike in a different way. And I think Western governments are too afraid of that. And that's why they're limiting, I believe, their support for Ukraine, which is, in my view, short-sighted because it just provokes more attacks in the future because Putin will probably feel encouraged by that lack of support. So you'd see you draw lines between what's happening now and traditional strategies of appeasement, which haven't particularly seemed to work out. The biggest one that comes to mind, obviously, being the 1938 Neville Chamberlain peace deal. Well, let's put it this way. I think currently the support for Ukraine comes across as a bit half-hearted. There is actually an open contradiction now between, for example, the German weapons industry and the German government, where the German government says we can't deliver because we haven't got the material. And the German weapons industry says, well, if you you told us to to produce it, we would. Mm. If you told us to 
deliver it, we would. Have you read anything recently about the concern in the West that the Russia-Ukraine conflicts brought out this lack of industrial capacity, this inability to build as many missiles, grenades, guns as we used to be able to? Well, yes, and uh, it is quite telling, actually, that Russia currently receives more artillery ammunition from North Korea than the whole of Western Europe is able to produce. Mm. So the situation in Ukraine remains serious, but I think it might just be the prelude to a wider conflict. And just over the last week or so, we heard quite a few warnings, actually, about the potential of that conflict to escalate. There was Admiral Bauer, a high-ranking NATO official, warning that an all-out war with Russia between NATO and Russia is possible within the next 20 years. Just a day later, we heard a similar statement from the German defense minister saying that actually his experts are giving him between five and eight years for that kind of war. And then again, just a few days after that, the Swedes told their population to prepare for all-out war, and the Swedish minister talked to his people and said, well, we need to mentally prepare for this State of affairs. I mean, Sweden hasn't fought a war since, I believe, 1814. And then just yesterday, two statements, one from Finland, similar kind of statement, we have to be prepared. Now Finland has, of course, a NATO border with Russia since uh, Finland entered NATO last year. And we had another statement from the head of the British Defence Force at a, a seminar in Twickenham, London, saying that British Army, British Armed Forces are now down to such a low level that Britain might need conscription in the future should it come to an all-out war with Russia. So when you put all of these different statements together, a picture emerges that is really scary because once upon a time we thought, well, this is a really remote possibility that NATO would actually find itself directly in a military conflict with Russia, whereas currently, of course, NATO is only supporting Ukraine. And even though ministers and NATO leaders are still saying this is not a, an immediate threat and um, they, they, they wouldn't actually think this is uh, extremely likely right now, the possibility is on the horizon mm. and that is scary in mm. itself. Let's zoom in a bit there on the nato Finnish border. So NATO's a defensive pact. That means that if Russia were to cross the border into Finland, NATO, in particular the big backer of NATO America would be obligated to go in and protect Finland. So let's say that, you know, this once vanishingly small but increasingly likely event comes to pass. Can you see America putting troops on the ground in Finland? Maybe let's take a few steps backwards first. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you're right to say that NATO is a defensive alliance. So NATO doesn't threaten anyone. NATO doesn't threaten to attack Russia. It is a defensive pact, and it is a defensive pact that guarantees its members to come to support should there be a military invasion, a military conflict. The other thing to say is that Russia, of course, claims that it's being circled by NATO members. Well, it is relatively difficult to circle a country like Russia. It's a country that spans 11 time zones. You look at the border that they now have with Finland, and that's tiny when you put the whole of Russia together. Actually, nobody could even seriously claim that Russia is being circled by NATO members. And anyway, it has a defensive alliance, as I said. But back to your question, yes, should it come to a Russian aggression against any NATO member, then the others, according to the NATO treaty, would be required to support that attacked member. I don't think that an attack on Finland is the most likely Mm-hmm. option here. Actually, just looking at the rhetoric we got from Putin recently, I'm much more 
likely target seems to be one of the Baltic states. So Putin, in an interview just a few days ago, actually said that there are now attacks on ethnic Russians in the Baltic states, so Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. Now, you don't need to be an interpreter to see this as a kind of a reason, a pretense of a reason for a war with the Baltic states. So I think if we were to expect a Russia-NATO conflict, it would probably start in the Baltic states. Just to take the heft out of the conversation for a moment, have you seen that Russia recently declared that Alaska um, is illegally occupied by the United States? No, I didn't see that. <laughs> and anyway, there was a commercial transaction of the late 19th century, I believe. Yeah, yeah, no, it is very interesting. I, I think this came up very shortly after the Baltic stuff. Well, let's move away. So we've got two main pillars of geopolitical instability here. We've got... Well, maybe just oh, one, one yeah, last so thing to add to that, actually. NATO is, of course, preparing for that possibility as we speak. So one of the things that um, our listeners might have missed, um, but it's actually quite a big topic in Europe these days, NATO is currently practicing for this possibility, and it is conducting its biggest maneuver in decades, but really the biggest maneuver since the end of the first Cold War. So from what I have picked up, um, about 90,000 troops are currently being engaged in a massive logistical exercise, and the idea behind that is precisely to try whether NATO is even capable of moving enough troops to countries like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, in order to counter a Russian offensive. By the way, in that context, Germany is also um, positioning parts of its troops permanently in Lithuania. So the Germans have sent 5,000 troops there to Lithuania on a permanent basis, including with their families and building up a whole uh, infrastructure to actually house and basically deal with this German expat community in Lithuania as part of an effort to bolster Lithuanian defenses because these three small countries don't really have two large armies um, to speak of. Interesting. So there's, is there already quite a large German population in Lithuania? No, no, this is a new thing. It was just announced at the end of last year by Boris Pistorius, the German defense minister. And it's a very unusual thing for the Germans to do, of course, mm. to have that permanent presence of 5,000 German troops in Lithuania just to prepare for a potential Russian invasion. And by the way, we should take this very seriously, because if... Putin at any stage tries to engage NATO in a war, they would be frontline troops. Mm. Actually, there was a very interesting interview with Sönke Neitzel, who's a professor of war studies, um, perhaps Germany's most preeminent war strategist currently. And he said, actually, the German public probably doesn't realize that if it comes to a conflict with Russia, we would probably have hundreds of casualties just in the very first few days. And the question is actually, and something that Germany has to prepare for, what then? Mm. Would people say, well, okay, this was a mistake, we should have never given guarantees, and why were we even there in the first place? Or would they then say, okay, now we are really at war, and an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all the others? Do you think it'd be quite cynical to look at what Russia's doing as essentially a dead man switch on German involvement in the war? You station these people out at the front line, there will be German casualties in the first couple of days of conflict, and then the German public ends up behind the movement regardless? That is the big question, because nobody in Western European societies is prepared for war. That mm. was never a serious possibility for the last three decades, and there is no mental preparedness for any of this. Moving away from the 
to the Middle Eastern and the European pillars. I thought we could move towards Asia, particularly the Taiwan situation in China, and then we'll turn to America as Pax Americana and how political events might affect that. But I just thought maybe you could give listeners a brief overview to outline the situation currently in Taiwan. Well, the situation in Taiwan is, of course, that the forces that Beijing really doesn't like won the presidential election. And these are the people who maintain Taiwan's independence, and that sets them up for continued conflict with Beijing, even though the winning candidate in the presidential election, of course, in his acceptance speech, already tried to find a different kind of rhetoric towards Beijing, trying to downplay the conflict intentions and saying that he would hope to find some kind of arrangement with Beijing. Mm. Well, okay, but it remains um, a conflict, and... There is, of course, a temptation because the situation, economic situation in China is not positive at the moment. And China knows that probably only has a limited window for taking any action on, or rather against Taiwan, especially because there's this looming threat of a demographic collapse hmm. in China. I've seen actually forecasts that China might go down from current level of 1.4 billion people population to just under 400 million by 2100. That's basically the result of their one-child policy. So Xi Jinping knows that if he ever wants to move on Taiwan, probably has to do, he has to do that, and China has to do that uh, relatively soon, because otherwise China's internal demographic and economic problems will become much worse. So let's talk about that a bit more for a moment. So I, I look at... Uh, China, and it's been a huge engine for population and economic growth. And I'd like to make an analogy across from the construction sector, where China, a lot of China's wealth is tied up in investments in infrastructure and construction. And they have had a few empty cities. This infrastructure investment seems to have become out of hand, a bit of a catch-22. And also a lot of stuff is falling to pieces. And I've seen people make similar arguments for China's military, that it's effectively, it's a paper tiger, the, there are large swathes of it not well put together, not well funded. What's your opinion there? Hard to say. I mean, we said the same about the Russian forces, of course, before the Ukraine war, but even an army that isn't fully functional and probably not that well managed can still create a massive security problem, as we can see in Russia. Let's move across to America, because obviously the world order since the end of the Cold War has been the Pax Americana. Um, we've had uh, a world peace essentially backed by um, the world's policemen, which has been the United States. And if we look at the United States elections at the moment, it looks like it's going to be another Biden and Trump runoff. And if it's another Biden and Trump runoff, the polling shows that it will be tight. And actually, a lot of the polls show that Trump would win that election. So I, I suppose the question for you is, uh, what sort of influence do you think Trump would have on America's foreign policy? Well, the best way to figure out where Trump wants to go is to listen to him and take him seriously. Mm-hmm. He's been remarkably open in what he wants to do in foreign policy. There was a very telling interview about a year ago, which Trump said, well, wait until I'm president again, and then Putin will probably win this in some way. That's almost how he phrased it. So basically, he signaled that actually, once I'm president, we'll, we'll find an arrangement. And the interview question at the time was something like, looks like Putin is losing. And he said, oh, don't be so sure. I will be president. That was roughly how he phrased it. And- 
why do you think Ukraine has become this kind of political flashpoint for conservatives in America? Well, because Trump's whole rhetoric is about making America great again, and not the rest of the world. So it's a uh, decidedly isolationist perspective. Mm. And support for Ukraine among Trumpian Republicans is quite low. It is very unpopular. And it is so unpopular now that even Biden is under pressure to reduce his military aid towards Ukraine. And Zelensky, when he visited Washington at the end of last year, uh, didn't get a particularly enthusiastic reception. And so what we could expect is, of course, that America withdraws even more from Europe. And under Trump, Europe would be on its own. There would be no Pax Americana, and the Europeans would have to fend for themselves. They would have to stem all the support for Ukraine on their own, and they would then have to also organize their own security without being able to rely on American nuclear deterrence. And that is scary because the Europeans aren't prepared for that. German army is down to about 120,000 troops. The British army is at the same level, a little bit below that actually. Yes, there are 500 nuclear warheads in the UK and in France, but that's not enough to really counter the 5,000 that Russia has. So Europe on its own, without proper NATO support from America, would probably not be able to defend itself against an aggressive Russia. And the Europeans, you could say, they had enough time to prepare themselves for that scenario because it was obvious in Trump's first presidency that there is a chance that America might withdraw completely from its guarantees towards Europe, but they didn't do that. They are not prepared. And so that second Trump presidency, where that might happen, comes a lot too early for the Europeans. They are simply not there yet. And what about the Taiwan and Israel situations? Can you, has Trump made bold claims in either directions there? Well, Trump, like the rest of the American establishment, presents himself as someone who is tough on China. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how this is going to play out. I think neither does he. Mm. And the same is true probably for the Middle East. Uh, I haven't really seen a comprehensive and coherent uh, Middle East strategy from Trump. So there, I think we have to put big question marks over Trump Mark II. We simply don't know how this is going to play out. The other thing I think we should still include in our conversation is, of course, that apart from real hot military conflict, there are many other ways in which wars of the 21st century are being fought. I mean, one British strategist called it the weaponization of everything. There's a book under the same title, if you're interested, and you should all read this, I think, actually. It's a very good book. And it describes quite comprehensively how wars are now taking the form of support for organized crime, how wars are fought in cyberspace, how wars are fought with disinformation campaigns, and how wars are fought with actually influencing some nasty opposition forces in Western democracies. Take, for example, the support that the Russians have given to Marine Le Pen quite openly, actually. So far-right candidate, actually, in the last French presidential elections got support from the Kremlin for her party. The same is true, actually, for the Kremlin's connections to the far-right Freedom Party in Austria, which, by the way, looks likely to win the Austrian election this year. So more than 30% for a party with very close links to the Kremlin in a central European country. So... Take all of these different aspects of war together. Keep in mind, of course, that Russia played a role in the last US presidential elections on Trump's side. And you've got a very concerning picture altogether. A West that is being destabilized by forces from outside in a 
kind of pre-war fashion, preparing probably for a hot war that might actually start over the next few years. Absolutely exciting stuff to start the year off with. Well, I don't think exciting captures it quite. Scary stuff, really. Mm. And I wish I could be a bit more optimistic on this, but unfortunately, I have to concur with atomic scientists. I mean, our geopolitical situation is at the most fragile in decades. And for someone, I mean, I was a teenager when the Cold War ended, but I still mm. remember the Cold War times. When, and I, as you know, I grew up in Germany, and in Germany we had every Saturday the sirens, just for rehearsal. Every Saturday at noon you heard the sirens and you knew what that was for. And we had a parallel road signs, actually, where on the major roads in Germany you could actually see speed limits, not just for ordinary cars, but for tanks. And on bridges, actually, it noted um, the weight capacity they could carry just in case a military convoy needs to cross. So there were signs of the Cold War everywhere at the time, growing up in West Germany. And suddenly, after 1990, that was all gone. So the sirens remained off on Saturdays. They were actually taken down then. So Germany actually tried to prepare itself recently for any kind of event, I mean, whether it's a war or a natural disaster, and they had to reactivate the sirens because they had been taken down. So it takes us back to a very strange time, a very dark time, but even then, growing up under this, there was still this feeling that, yeah, this is all unpleasant and this is all potentially quite dangerous, but we are prepared and the preparation makes the real actual conflict less likely. Mm. And by the way, this was also a time when the West Germans and um, many other Europeans were actually dealing economically with the Soviet Union. So while all of this was going on on security front back then, the Germans imported massive amounts of Russian gas, for example, and Russian oil. It goes back to the 1970s. So that was a different time. You, you could deal with these guys. Yeah, they were the ideological enemy, and you were prepared for a potential military conflict with them, but actually both sides behaved relatively rationally. I think we've left that behind. Interesting. So you think that we we might end up almost bumbling ourselves into a much worse conflict than would otherwise have occurred had we been well prepared? Yes, I mean that's the old Latin saying: if you want to, if you want peace, prepare for war. Servis partem parabellum, and that makes sense because you have to be strong enough to deter the other side from attacking you. And unfortunately, the West is not strong. The West is not strong militarily. And the West is also quite weak because it is disunited and it has a lot of conflicts actually in its own societies. And some of them are actually fostered by the enemies in the East. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the New Zealand Initiative podcast available wherever good podcasts are sold. 